Hello and welcome to Made to Measure, the podcast of the Journal of Trading Standards. I'm Paul Evans. In this episode, we're looking at online marketplaces. Over the past decade or so, these platforms have emerged as popular destinations for consumers in search of a bargain. These websites and apps, often linked to social media, usually don't own the goods they offer. Instead, they enable individuals to trade, buy and sell things among themselves. Online marketplaces can offer shoppers the chance to snap up second-hand designer or rare items at knockdown prices, but they also present unique challenges for trading standards. Citizens' advice revealed in November that over the previous 12 months they were the cause of more than 13,000 complaints, with an average loss to those who got in touch of £215. That marks a 35% increase in complaints over the past four years. Furthermore, among those who were disappointed with the outcome of a purchase, 50% reported difficulties when trying to resolve their issue. Online marketplaces pose problems for a number of reasons. For example, the laws around buying goods from a private individual are different from those that apply to purchases made from a business. Since in many cases it can be unclear which is which, consumers can be vulnerable to exploitation, particularly when, as is often the case, they are unsure of their legal rights. According to Citizens Advice, last year more than 50% of shoppers didn't know they had fewer rights when dealing with a private seller than with a business. We spoke with David McKenzie, CTSI's Joint Lead Officer for e-commerce, about how the problems raised by online marketplaces are being tackled, how trading standards and other professionals can better understand the relevant legal issues, and how both businesses and consumers can ensure they work better for everybody. We also spoke briefly to Mike Andrews, coordinator of the National Trading Standards e-crime team, about the legal issues that can arise in this area. Mike's full interview on tackling online crime will feature in the next episode of the podcast. But for now, David McKenzie kicks things off with an overview of the type of work he's involved in. My name's David McKenzie. Uh, my day job is as Trading Standards Manager for the Highland Council in Scotland. But I'm also a joint lead officer for e-commerce for the Chartered Trading Standards Institute uh, across the UK. That role involves getting involved in policy development in the e-commerce area, uh, speaking to government about proposed new laws, new guidance and so on, uh, you know, responding to consultations, media requests for uh, information and so on and so forth, whatever happens in the e-commerce world for CTSI. I'll be getting involved in that sort of thing, you know. So, David, what, what what is an online marketplace, and and why is it different from a a regular e-commerce site run by a, a big retailer? Okay, yeah. Well, I mean, the first thing I think to say about what's an online marketplace is that it's it's developing all the time. I mean, everyone says this, and it's a cliche, but it's true. I mean, the the online world, online e-commerce world, is is developing so quickly that that definition expands all the time. And I find it useful to have a wide definition uh, of, of what that is, because at the end of the day, our role in trading standards is to make sure that people are tra- treated fairly regardless of how they buy something, regardless of who they're buying it from. So a, a wide definition. So I, I would say, obviously, it ranges from you know large multi-seller websites that are specifically set up to facilitate e-commerce for a wide range of of resellers such as eBay, Amazon, Alibaba, whatever. It clearly includes that. But I would want to widen the definition to include other situations where 
large influential websites which are not specifically set up for e-commerce but nevertheless which facilitate uh, the buying and selling of goods and services such as social media such as uh, Facebook or classified ads even sites like Gumtree which clearly don't have the full works for actually uh, buying something but they introduce people and they facilitate uh, sales in a very important way and to, to a very important extent. I think finally I would say uh, the specialist sites that deal with you know a particular uh, industry much of this would be governed by what's termed the, the collaborative or gig economy so it would be the likes of Uber who obviously specialize in, in you know car journeys or, or Airbnb who obviously deal with accommodation particularly tourist accommodation uh, the, these sites have grown from from nothing very quickly to be very influential in in, in their areas. So there are many others, of course, but that's just trying to give you a picture there of the, of the wide range that we would uh, look at and that needs to be given some attention. So does your remit include websites like Uber then? Well, trading standards laws are very wide in their application. So they apply to anyone who's, who's buying and selling. Sometimes they don't, you know, law by its very nature, you know, is is it can be a fairly long process put putting a piece of law together and to get it onto the statute book and it, it doesn't always keep up with technological and the societal change which which brings about so it means applying consumer laws that have been designed for you know shop sales if you like uh, to to these types of scenarios that we're talking about can can be challenging but it can be done and it needs to be done so basically anywhere the rule of thumb is if the seller is a business, that, that is a complicated question of which I think we'll, we'll talk about later. But if the seller is a business and the buyer is a consumer, then trading standards applies and, and we have a remit there. I asked Mike Andrews, the national coordinator for the National Trading Standards e-crime team, about the challenges that can arise when legislation drags behind technology in the online space. The law moves notoriously slowly, uh, and if you think of the advances in technology, I mean, we're only talking, what is it, probably 10 years ago, and, and Facebook didn't even exist. We're using legislation that was written, um, well, by and large, obviously there's been recent updates in terms of Ripper, but by and large we're talking about legislation that was written back in the late 90s and the, the early uh, noughties. So well, that's the that's the sort of direction of travel with legislation that doesn't always keep up. But of course, that's only ever applied domestically anyway. And one of the big challenges is the is the global nature of the, the problem that we're trying to tackle. And it might it, it's all well and good, UK legislation at least trying to get into a position where it's uh, a better place. But then there's still not any international agreement on, for example, what will be the standards required to 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 get websites taken down that could be applied unilaterally and that that's I suppose the bigger challenge that um, we, we, we may never well get to a position where there's, a, there's, a, there's at least an international consensus on how to, to tackle some of these problems. If you look at the for example the concerted pressure that's been brought to bear on social media platforms and, and not just for you know in inverted commas consumer protection issues uh, but for all sorts of issues like terrorist content and hate speech and, and, and child sexual exploitation and I think that's clearly been a concerted effort by various agencies to try and improve the way in which social media platforms deal with that kind of content but the, the, that, that does then tend to filter down in terms of the agreements we now have where we can get content that's relevant to us removed. So back to David McKenzie 
What's the difference in terms of consumer law between a private individual seller and a business selling things online? Well, they are very different. And this point actually goes to the heart of one of the, one of the key issues here. If it is genuinely a private seller, and this, that's how this started, you know, you know years ago on, on, on sites like eBay, perhaps people selling off a few unwanted items, clearly private individuals. Under those circumstances, very few of the consumer and trading laws apply. Uh, there's n- nothing like the obligations that there are uh, of business seller. The buyer doesn't have the same rights and it's essentially it's buyer beware to a large extent. And that's the law to reflect the situation that the seller really is a, a, a private individual. The problem is, I suppose, or the challenge is that you know you don't have to be specifically registered or have a specific business name to nevertheless be in business according to the the UK laws. And the difficulty can be, you know, when does somebody who's selling a few things sell a few more things? You know, when does that turn into something that would be a business and would be fully you know, uh, subject to all the laws. That is one of the big challenges. And it's it's always been an issue, you know, that people sold things through the small ads in the newspapers and so on in the past, still do that. But this issue is exacerbated by the multi-seller uh, websites, by the, 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 the classified uh, websites, but even more so by the, the collaborative economy uh, websites. You know, when does uh, somebody who lets out one room for a few weeks in the in the summer are they in business if they if it's for three months is that in business and the, these are difficult uh, legal points to define and one of the things we think uh, you know we're not really in favor of lots of new laws being created all the time we think uh, a lot of the the consumer law that is in existence at the moment is, is pretty good albeit it needs to be updated a little bit for the the modern age but one law that does need some attention is this issue of what is a business because everything else follows from that in terms of what the consumer's rights are and whereas in the past this was a if you like a kind of marginal issue that didn't come up very often with the growth of multi-seller platforms and the collaborative economy there's now a much larger number of situations which there are, are in this kind of gray area if you like what are the criteria that apply when deciding whether someone is acting as a private individual, getting rid of a few things, or whether they're actually operating a business? It does depend on the circumstances. And this is what officers and other you know, people involved in, in having to come to this legal definition have to, have to consider. I mean, one of the silly examples that we use to, to, to make this point is, you know, if I, if I sell a couple of ordinary bits and pieces on eBay or something like that, I'm probably not going to be in business. But if I if I sell two Aston Martins in a year from, from something like some sort of business premises, then although I've only sold two things, maybe that keeps me going for the whole year and that may well be deemed to be in business. So quantity of sales is, a, is an issue. But, you know, on the other hand, you might be selling, you know, an elderly relative might have died and they might just be selling off the, the contents of, of, of their house. And that probably wouldn't be deemed to be business. So quantity of items is often relevant, but it has to be contextualized. The intention of, you know, it's, it's something bought just to be sold, that sort of thing as well. But it, it really does depend that 
the type of items, goods and services that are being sold, the, the judgment will vary slightly depending on the, on the circumstances. It's a really difficult judgment to make. Different laws have slightly different standards as well. It's not an easy one to resolve this, but one way that could be considered, and this is something that we've been thinking about and is something we, we may well put to government soon, is to look at the... Maybe it's time just to set set clear parameters on this. I mean, the government did this with the sale of goods law, in which the there was a there was a really complicated judgment uh, as to whether there was a goods had been accepted in law, which is a legal term, before the, the, the whether you had the right to uh, reject the goods and get your money back, or you had to accept a repair. That was the previous situation. The Consumer Rights Act that came in a couple of years ago created a situation where basically if it's within the first 30 days that the, the goods are faulty, you can get your money back. If it's beyond 30 days, you need to accept a repair or a replacement. Now, that has some, you know, that has pros and cons as any such decision has. And, you know, if it's, if it's a very expensive item and you've only had it for 31 days and you've hardly used it, that might seem a little bit unfair. But you will always have these issues at the margins. The benefit that that has had, I would argue, is as much outweighs the disadvantages in that the clarity, clarity for business, clarity for consumers. So a similar type of thing, you know, you could say, right, if you're selling something and you're taking a profit, you're deemed to be in business. You know, it could be really, really widened. And then the discretion could be left for the likes of regulators uh, like ourselves or, or courts where to be sensible about it in terms of where when it came to any enforcement so that if somebody was only selling a handful of things although this new theoretical law I'm talking about might deem them to be in business we're not going to come down the you know, ton of bricks with them oh you need to comply with this that and the next thing because it would be disproportionate and unreasonable and so I think you just see what I mean I think that there's definitely scope for at least considering some kind of parameters which may seem kind of arbitrary to a degree that create clarity and allow us to, to deal with the situation more easily in the future and makes it easier for business as well so it's clear to them as to where they stand. Do you come across many cases of people who are actually running a business posing as a private individual in order to circumvent consumer protection laws? Yes, we, we do see that. Just recently we've noticed uh, a real upsurge in the sale of cars, second-hand cars, through you know all kinds of different uh, online platforms, all kinds of different online uh, websites that, that basically get people together, if you like. This is this was long, long a problem back, back in the day. Uh, people did this uh, through the, the classifieds, through the newspapers, selling a number of uh, items, well aware that I mean, in Scotland, they require a license as well to sell, you know, second-hand cars. So they were both avoiding that and avoiding the full suite of rights that the buyer should have and didn't realise they, they, they should have because they think they're buying off a, a private individual. So that continues to be an issue. It happens in other areas too, but second-hand cars are obviously a, a priority for us in terms of, you know, it's, it's an expensive item that, that's important to people. Uh, so it becomes, becomes one of our priorities. So how many of the cases you come across are cross-border in their nature? First thing to say, in the UK context, although I've, I came up with an example there which shows the, 
the difference between Scotland and, and the rest of the UK. To be honest, when it comes to consumer, that's the exception that proves the rule in many ways, that most UK, most consumer law is, is reserved to Westminster. It's not devolved to the devolved administrations. And, and the law is very, very similar across the UK. In terms of overseas uh, cross-border stuff, lots and lots of issues. Lots of issues. There are two that I would want to particularly address and, and mention to you just now. One is again, it's, it's to do with the issue of identity of who the seller is. We we constantly see a problem on multi-seller marketplaces and elsewhere of sellers essentially posing as as UK sellers. To all intents and purposes, the buyer thinks they're buying off a, a UK seller, and and that has some kind of gives them some kind of you know peace of mind that they're buying off somebody relatively local, but it turns out that, that person's based in the Far East or, or wherever, and if something does go wrong, the chances of them being able to pursue a dispute are you know can be remote in those circumstances. That's a problem. There are other issues, but clearly Brexit's a, a, a big you know you can't get away from it in any conversation just now, can you? Uh, CTSI put together its Brexit think tank. Uh, I don't know if you've seen the, the publication there that, that we've produced on that. So I've certainly been involved in that. And Brexit has, at the moment, I think, as we head towards the possibility of a, of a no-deal Brexit or the possibility of some kind of last-minute deal, uh, there's a lot of focus at, at the moment on the, the very short-term uh, outcomes of that. And, you know, clearly... You know, quite rightly, people are worried about lorries stacking up at Dover and all that kind of thing. We would stress that you know there's issues there, and there's there's e-commerce issues there, and there's there's certainly trade and standards issues there. But we mustn't forget the medium and long term on this, where in a sense there's almost uh, more important issues. And in terms of straightforward e-commerce, retail e-commerce, the law's not going to change on the you know the thirtieth of March. It's going to be copied over, and it's going to be the same. But where we will stand in terms of a substantive uh, trade deal or otherwise, which even in the best case scenario is going to take uh, several years to to negotiate with uh, the EU, we just don't. UK um, businesses who sell online and UK buyers who buy from overseas, which is an increasingly large proportion of of populace now. Well, you know, we don't know where they're going to stand. Are they going to have the sort of direct access that they have? Uh, to those markets in the future. We just don't know that. I mean, the, the government has, and the EU have, in their political, their draft political de- declaration, which is, of course, dependent on, on an agreement being signed, a withdrawal agreement being signed, do make, uh, no- you know, positive noises about, uh, you know, close uh, cooperation on, on good sales and e-commerce and da- data as well. But it's, you know, we don't know what the detail of that's going to be. We really don't. Digital content's another thing as well. So from the e-commerce portfolio, digital content is now the third type of thing for, for retail. You have goods, you have services, and you have digital content. And both the UK law and, and EU law recognises this as a, as a separate category now. And there hasn't been, there's been talk about goods and services, there's been very little uh, talk about, about digital content and what access our very innovative digital content providers that we've got in the UK, we're a leader, real leader on, on a lot of this, what kind of access they're going to have to, to those European markets in the future. And that's that's a big unknown as well. So there's a lot, lots going on there. One last thing I would like to, I'd like to say as well, from the trade and standards point of view, at the moment, our officers across the, across the country can uh, tap into the consumer protection cooperation uh, network, which is a 
across EU uh, network of regulators sharing information, sharing skills, working together on cross-border cases. Clearly, when we leave the EU, we will no longer be part of that, and we need to create something as close as possible to that level of cooperation. Uh, and that's very much uh, in the mix and in, in doubt at the moment. You mentioned dig- digital content there. I, I suspect that tackling counterfeit goods of all varieties is a, is, a, is a big part of what you do. Yes, absolutely. Obviously, the day-to-day job of trading standards is, is to deal with problems that arise, and th- those such problems do exist. I mean, the, I think it's important to preface that with, by saying that the whole multi-seller uh, online marketplace world has brought an awful lot of benefits to consumers, you know, choice, convenience, uh, some extra protections and so on. And generally, generally speaking, it is a good thing. There's no doubt about it. But with any new trading activity, any societal change, any technological change brings with it its, its problems. It's inevitable. And, and, you know, these exist in this area, in this space, too. And as, as you say, uh, counterfeit and dangerous goods is certainly two that are, are priority areas for, for, for trading standards. When I started in this job, you know, 20 odd years ago, you could go to the high street, let's say, in, in, in most towns and you would find, you would find count, counterfeit goods in shops. Generally, there's still a few, but generally that's not the case anymore. And, you know, they're sold through more kind of underground, more sort of hidden uh, sources. And some of the, you know, online opportunities that bring people together, more, perhaps more so than the multi-seller platforms, you know, that uh, some of these other circumstances, which again, you know, have improved people's lives and provide services of bringing people together, which, which people really value and which, generally speaking, people use in a really positive way. But it can also be used in a negative way and it can be a way of selling counterfeit goods, absolutely, and dangerous goods. A lot, it's a real challenge for trading standards officers up and down the land to tackle the sales of counterfeit goods that are done through these uh, type, you know, these online, um, you know, social media or whatever, where it just puts people together as opposed to something being on display on a shop, which is very easy for us to deal with. We just go in and and, and seize them and deal with it, you know. And it's a much more complicated investigation. Quite often you'll need, the officer will need special permissions in terms of monitoring the activities of individuals on, on the site, online surveillance. There's really, really strict rules nowadays on when and how you can do that sort of thing. So it makes it much more challenging and time-consuming for the trading standards investigators to to do that that doesn't that doesn't put them off you know we still we still do it and we still deal with these things but we need to keep evolving and keep developing our our skills to keep up keep up with these things and you mentioned specific permissions to access the details of a seller where where would that permission come from a judge magistrate or, or from the host website itself well, it wouldn't. It wouldn't be from the site. It would be from depending on the circumstances. It could be a magistrate, or it could be a senior uh, person within the council. But there's, it's pretty onerous, you know. Uh, it's a pretty onerous thing, and there's lots of uh, checks, checks and balances that go with it, which is fine because this is this is about invasion of, of privacy, you see. But but with a lawful and reasonable uh, reason, you know, for doing it. I say invasion of pri- privacy. I mean, a lot of these laws have been designed for when you're. Maybe you've got some. You've got information that somebody's selling illegal uh, products from a, a particular house, and you're maybe watching them from across the road, sort of thing. 
uh, your traditional surveillance. Now, that, it does apply to that, and our guys do that when it's reasonable and proportionate and necessary to do that. They will do it. And that's really what these laws and why these laws are so onerous, because you've been in somebody's, you know, looking at their house and at their front door, quite rightly, uh, that that needs can only be done where it's absolutely justified and it's proportionate to do it. The slight problem is that these laws also apply to the, the, the digital private space, private and in inverted commas, uh, and, and social media and other types of uh, website like that where it's not an e-commerce website, it's not directly for selling, is deemed by, by the law to be a private space. And so therefore, these surveillance and intrusion rules apply. So, you know, as soon as we look a couple of times at a selling group on, on, a, on social media, um, we're looking at, and you know, really as, as little as that, that can require surveillance uh, authorization, which strikes us as, you know, to be honest with you, a, a terrible lot less intrusive than uh, setting up across the road in someone's house to, to watch them selling kind of for goods. But uh, nevertheless, the law is what the law is, and, we, and it, you know, we, we respect that, and uh, our guys will um, do what they have to do to, to, to complete the investigation. Mike Andrews of the National Trading Standards e-crime team says that when it comes to taking down content, Trading Standards has worked to develop good relationships with many websites. As it currently stands, we, we don't have any legal levers per se to compel a host company or a social media platform to remove content. What we tend to rely on is relationships that we've developed over, over a number of years now where we can present to the host company evidence of what we consider to be the illegal activity that would also be supported by um, consumer complaints or, or you know real life examples of where consumers have have lost money and invite them to consider whether, whether they want to continue hosting that material um, and because of the relationship, relationships we've developed and because the host companies are now generally comfortable dealing with us on most occasions not always but certainly uh, the majority of occasions the companies will remove that content. So David, what, what role do initiatives like the Real Deal Scheme or Real Deal Online have to play in this? I, th- I think they definitely have a role uh, and a very, a very important role. The Real Deal, we're strong supporters of the Real Deal. In my own authority, we've got markets and, and various uh, you know, real-world situations like that, that are signed up to the Real Deal. We're also looking at extending that now to, to online, as you say. We've had a lot of positive, you know, liaison and cooperation from operators of, for example, selling groups on, on social media and Facebook and so on. A lot of posit- really, really positive, constructive engagement with, with people who do that. Uh, we're looking at, uh, you know, as, as I say, extending the, the, the real deal to some um, online uh, providers. And none of these things is the magic wand that sorts everything out. You know, it's, a, it's about piecing together different strategies and different ways of improving the situation for everyone. And the real deal has absolutely got a, a strong part to play on that in the, in the online sphere, I would suggest. Do you think both consumers and sellers are aware enough of their rights and responsibilities around these issues? I suspect not, to be honest. What we have is uh, it, online, um, you know, every day, new people come online and start selling things. Every day, somebody who's selling a handful of things grows their business into something quite significant. And this can happen quite quickly. Now, in, in, you know, years ago, when, when retail worked differently and trading standards authorities were well-resourced, 
if a new business started, it generally meant a new shop, and we'd go and see them, and we'd, you know, our guys would would help them out and tell them this is how you need to treat people fairly. You'll get more sales if you treat people fairly. Here's here's some ideas about how to go about it, uh, and they would get that advice. Now that's just not happening now, partly because the the resources of trading standards are so massively reduced from what they were, and at the same time, the online world, and particularly the multi-seller uh, platform world, allows people very easily to, to become a retail seller, and as I say, to grow into retail seller from, from something less than that very, very quickly as well. So they're not getting that advice. So inevitably, businesses are not as well informed as they would have been in the past. I think another issue is in terms of the rights of a consumer, uh, there's a kind of double-edged sword there on on multi-seller platforms. The first thing to say is that there is additional protections. So in addition to all the legal protections that they have when they're buying anything, they have the rules of the site. So the site, very often multi-seller platform site will have rules which um, among other things are aimed at, at treating you know customers particularly fairly and not abusing the trust not abusing the trust of the site and so on and these types of rules are have the, have a net effect of creating extra protections for the buyer that and along with that a lot of multi-seller uh, platforms will have um, dispute resolution mechanism which again is additional to, to all the other things that uh, a buyer can have. So these these are positives which increase and improve, in theory, improve the consumer's position. The problem is, I would suggest, and we see this uh, a lot, is there's a tendency for the platform, the sellers and the buyers, to kind of forget that they've got all their normal protections. So all the normal rules that apply, you know, the, 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 it may well be that the seller is focused on Making you know keeping the platform operator happy and making sure they um, comply with their rules, but they've also got to they've also got all the obligations that any other seller through through an e-commerce direct e-commerce platform, you know company website, uh, or 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 indeed a lot of the rules apply offline as well, and so that that can be a problem. And similarly, the consumer sometimes you know they may uh, gravitate to a problem arises. They gravitate to the dispute the dispute resolution mechanism which exists on the site maybe that doesn't resolve things for them and they give up whereas they you know they've still got their legal rights they've still got any of the other options they would have if they bought that somewhere else so you see what i mean it can it, it can it can improve and add and supplement uh, rights but it can have the, the the sort of unintended consequence of masking uh, those other rights uh, and that's a challenge to get that message across both to, to sellers and to buyers. Do you think there's a sort of community element to many of these online marketplace groups that can have an effect on people's behaviour? Yes, I, th- I think that's right. I, th- I think that's a good point. Buyers are probably less likely to think of, you know, they're making a retail sale. But at the end of the day, you know, it does. it really doesn't matter what uh, the the mechanism is. You know, if somebody... Is is selling things for a profit regularly. They're clearly in business, uh, and the buyer should be protected in the same way as as a shop. I mean, there's a really important. There's all sorts of reasons why that matters, and one of them is that it's it's fairness to the to the businesses. It's the unfair competition element of this, you know, if if somebody's you know doing the right thing, they maybe got their own website. They maybe sell on multi platforms as well. They may even have a physical 
presence, they're complying with everything, they've got all the overheads that are associated with complying with everything. And if they're being undercut by somebody who's selling through social media and, or, or, or classified or whatever and hiding, you know, as a, as a private uh, individual when they're in business, that's, that's unfair competition and it threatens that... Uh, legitimate uh, businesses who, who are the compet- effectively the competitors. We're just as big on that fair competition element to all this as we are on the consumer protection element. I would say that these are of equal importance. So obviously e-commerce is a relatively new phenomenon. You've, you've mentioned cuts to resources already. Do you think this is an area that's receiving the resources it needs, especially since it's only likely to expand in the coming years? By its nature, trading standards, uh, the structure of trading standards is still very localised, most of it. there are, Obviously, there are national uh, agencies and uh, particular uh, topics and so on. But broadly, uh, you know, the vast majority of trading standards work is done by people working for their local authority. With that goes the autonomy, uh, that local autonomy. And that's, that, that's often a good thing so that we can react to local needs and local requirements. But the, I suppose the downside of that is you get... Um, a wee bit of a postcode lottery as to as to how uh, the online uh, and e-crime and e-commerce world is, is tackled. Um, I have to say in my own authority, with it being Highland, uh, which is a, you know, a vast geographical area where the internet has been even more important uh, to consumers than it is any, any elsewhere, uh, because of the lack of proximity of, of, of high street shops for, for a lot, of, you know, a significant proportion of the population. So I think we're quite early adopters of, of the whole um, online world, and that, that has included the council being very aware of uh, the importance of, of e-commerce regulation. And, you know, we've had resources for that. We've had good equipment. You know, we've all, we had always had a standalone computer for for internet investigations and stuff like that so we've been quite well quite well resourced and quite well understood on that other authorities that won't be the case um and you know it, it can be nowadays some authorities are so trained standards departments are so small that they can be swamped by one or two issues to be honest uh, which are important locally so that it is patchy i have to say uh, the national teams do a really good job, but you know they obviously are limited in what they they can do, and they have to pick and choose what they do and use their their resources well, which they do. Uh, but there's still lots more to, to to be done, and I think an illustration give, just to give you an example of this. Um, one of the things I we've worked on a lot uh, again, and and sort of with my Scottish hat on is is internet delivery surcharges, which is a a big issue, particularly for the remote parts of, of the UK. That's a big long story in itself, but basically, cut a long story short, there has been a lot of positive progress on that over the years. But what you've also had over those those period of the last four or five, six years, whatever, is you've had a massive um, continued uh, escalation of, uh, you know, or increase in, in, the, you know, in e-commerce. More and more businesses selling more and more products smaller businesses getting bigger and um, so although there's been lots of um, improvements and a lot of big businesses have recognized this and have changed the way they, they they deal with surcharges and so on there's all these new businesses coming online or growing into more significant players and you know reaching all of them uh, through our you know diminished resources is, is really 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 challenging really really difficult um, over a period of time so that kind of principle I think applies 
uh, across all internet regulation. You know, we've had progress. We've we've had you know really good achievements. Um, I think we've done pretty well with the resources we've got across the UK in terms of trading standards. But you know, e-commerce continues to get bigger. It continues to evolve. Uh, it continues to involve more and more people, and it's a real challenge to to you know to stay still even on that. Uh, despite despite you know achieving things okay david so just to tie everything together what do you think needs to change or improve to strengthen our consumer protection in this area well in addition to restating the obvious and saying more resources for trading standards and you know i I don't say that flippantly it it is genuinely would make a difference because i think we do punch above our weight and i think we do achieve uh, a lot with the resources we've got, so additional resources would sit, would sit over over the piece would certainly help. But in terms of kind of topic areas, I think there's three things I would like to suggest, uh, if I may. The first is stronger enforcement of their own rules by e-platforms. I think I touched upon this earlier in terms of e-platforms have their own rules and they can be beneficial. To, to consumers. I mean, going back, just to give a quick illustration of this, the delivery surcharges is a good one. Very often, uh, the big e-platforms will have rules which forbid their their sellers from, uh, you know, imposing big uh, disproportionate surcharges, which sometimes then the sellers will go offline and contact the consumer directly and look to up the delivery charge by by some considerable margin. Now that's a that is a breach of the the it's a breach of the law, but it's also a breach of the e platforms terms and conditions and 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 so on. And we would like and and they tend to be good at dealing with them if if we bring it to their attention. But you know it's difficult for us to be checking up on these things all the time. So we would like to see more rigorous um, enforcement of their own rules by the platforms. That's one point. Second point is this definition of trader. Uh, you know when is uh, when does a private individual become a trader? And we would certainly be, I certainly would be suggesting that the, the government consider a range of possibilities on this in terms of possibly setting clear parameters as to what a trader is and therefore what the rights are of the buyer and the obligations of that individual making those sales. The third thing is improved uh, alternative dispute resolution across the UK. Uh, what we have at the moment is a situation where there are it, it's really patchy. There's a few good uh, alternative dispute resolutions, ADRs, financial ombudsman's very good, uh, very strong, very powerful. But in a lot of retail areas, there is no obligatory uh, ADR. The e-platforms, as say, have their own uh, dispute resolution. That could be quite useful too. Uh, and in some circumstances, it can be effective. But you know what we ideally what we need is um, for every retail sale in the UK, online or otherwise, of a, of an e-marketplace or otherwise, to be covered by an obligatory ADR. We're a long way from that, uh, and that's not going to happen overnight. But progress towards that. Uh, and increasing the number of scenarios that are covered by effective ADRs uh, would make a very big difference uh, to fair uh, retail across the UK. Well, that's it for another episode. Thanks to David McKenzie and Mike Andrews for speaking to us, and thank you for listening. We'll be back again in a fortnight with more insight into the world of trading standards. 
If you have any ideas or suggestions for the podcast or you just want to get in touch, send us an email to madetomeasure at jtsmag.uk. Don't forget to like and subscribe on iTunes or wherever you're listening to us. Until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.